Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We're back from a little hiatus while I was finishing up production on season four of my other podcast, Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. And if you're curious to hear what I've been up to, check it out wherever you get your podcasts. In season four, we told the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by music. For four episodes, we talked to those who use music not just to express themselves, but as a form of communication in a society that ignores or sometimes even outright silences them. And in the other four episodes, we have a how-to guide led by the legendary music therapist Connie Tomeno. She's a neurologic music therapy pioneer, and she walks us through four different ways that music therapy can help rewire and even heal parts of a neurodegenerative or injured brain. But on Inquiring Minds, this week, I get to chat with longtime colleague and fellow memory researcher Charin Ranganath, who on the occasion of his 50th birthday, decided to write a book for people rather than the Academy. He also decided to learn how to surf, and I can't vouch for his surfing skills, but I can tell you that he nailed the book part. And his book, Why We Remember, is not only a joy to read, but even full of packed information that I certainly didn't know Thinking of myself as a skeptical but somewhat well-researched memory researcher, there was a lot that I learned. So Taran, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. That was a very sweet introduction. Thank you. So I want to first talk about sea lions. That was one of the places where I was like, wait, what? So tell us about your study with sea lions. This was a really fascinating kind of moment where, you know, life sort of creates these opportunities for you. And so I was doing something called the Bay Area Memory Meeting. You might have attended one of those, actually. Yeah. And so I've been to a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally fun because it's like students and postdocs are the ones who talk. And so that means that the talks actually start and end on time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they actually don't have too much data. So it was perfect. And so we had a, a student named Peter Cook, who was from UC Santa Cruz. And Peter was not like hooked in with the memory community at all. And so, you know, we had all these great talks on, you know, here's recollection and familiarity, or here's free recall, and here's our fMRI study of this or that. And Peter comes and he shows like videos of sea lions. And he looks at basically how sea lions with domoic acid poisoning. So they basically, it's like a binge on these fish that, in turn, binge on algae that sometimes can be toxic. Like they have these toxic algae blooms. You've, have you heard of these like red tides and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. Isn't that, what was that one of the things that there was that couple and their young child that died when they were hiking and people first thought that it was because they, some kind of like toxic algae bloom, but turns out it was dehydration. Oh yeah, that's right. They had a bunch of theories about that. That's right. Yeah. 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 And there's all, there's a lot of real people who've gotten like uh shellfish, they call it like amnesic shellfish poisoning from it. 
Hmm. And the reason is, is that these algae produce a toxin called domoic acid. And so this is actually used in animal studies of epilepsy to generate epilepsy. For whatever reason, it, it affects the hippocampus, which as you know, and probably your listeners know, is very important for memory. Mm -hmm. And so what he found was he was basically seeing these sea lions that get washed up and was doing research with them. And so one of the things that he found was the ones that had domoic acid poisoning were actually very slow to get used to these surprising sounds, for instance. And so Peter was using that as a way of kind of identifying the sea lions that couldn't go back out to the ocean, right? And so I talked to Peter. I'm like, you know, my daughter would love to see your sea lions, <laughs> which is a parrot. You know, that's the first thing you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. So he said, yeah, I'd love to show you the lab. And so then next thing you know, I ended up on his thesis committee. And so he was doing MRI scanning with sea lions, right? Wow. I mean, you as like a scientist can appreciate just how cool this was. So he and I were talking and I advised him and I got a little bit of advice from Howard Eichenbaum, who's just an amazing researcher. And so one of the things that, so we came up with a bunch of tests to look at memory in sea lions. And then what we did was we actually wrote a grant to Siemens to be able to do fMRI in these sea lions. And so what they would do is these sea lions would wash up on the shore we would put them in an MRI scanner and, you know, they'd be anesthetized by a veterinarian. And this was all part of their veterinary workup anyway. And so we would just scan their brains while they're anesthetized, but just look at correlations of brain activity between different areas of the brain. And so what we found was, is that the sea lions with domoic acid poisoning, they had a lot of trouble with spatial memory. So they couldn't figure out where things were. If you showed a fish to them and then put them in a particular place and then you made the sea lion wait, then they couldn't find the fish. So it was just a, you know, tragically beautiful model for what was happening to them, you know, because they're opportunistic foragers. And if they don't know where the fish are, they're in a lot of trouble, right? So hmm. you can imagine a sea lion that gets epilepsy. They are like not able to find their food sources. They're basically going to get sick and then wash up on the shore. It was one of those things where we could actually show this connection piece by piece by piece to us dumping a lot of stuff into the water, toxic algae, animals eating this, and then getting sick and washing up on the shore. You know, one of the things that really captured me about your book right from the beginning, and this is related to essentially what you were finding that the hippocampus does in sea lions, is that you didn't title your book How We Remember, which I think a lot of people would imagine that, you know, a neuroscientist writing about memory would do, but rather why we remember. And this notion that there is like a, they're, they're understanding why it is that we have these different ways in which we can store, retrieve, access information is so important in terms of understanding the brain basis. So now we know then in these sea lions that what they're unable to do when they don't have this hippocampus functioning properly is essentially navigate their world. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about this relationship between spatial navigation and how we navigate our lives and how that relates to, to how we what we know that the, the hippocampus and related structures do. So what are, your, what are your thoughts about the overlap between spatial navigation and remembering? It's a really challenging question because there's so much controversy and debate about this in the field. And so, you know, there is a school of thought that the hippocampus, which was injured in these animals, creates these maps of the environment, right? And then there's another school of thought that it's about episodic memory, which creates these moments that you can remember and you just keep one memory for one time period different from another memory of another time period. And so we've been working with computational models of the brain, and basically those two things are incompatible. You could do one well or you could do the other well. But here's the thing. If you want to build a map of the environment, you have to start somewhere. And having these memories of these particular points in time where you saw a landmark or when you saw something important allows other parts of your brain to put these maps together. And so one of the things that we've been finding is, is that, you know, a lot of people have been thinking about the brain in terms of like, this area does this and this area does that. And we talk about the idea, well, brain areas talk to each other and interact. 
But an interaction is not just the same as one area doing one thing and another area doing another. It's like the whole is different from the sum of its parts, right? It's like mm-hmm. our conversation is not just the same as what you would talk about and what I would talk about independently. There's something about this interaction that's special. And so that's what we're finding with space. But you know, getting back to the point about the sea lions, I think one of the things that was very poignant for me is there's this idea of like space as being like a literal map of the world, right? And it's just like our sense of like memory as being a literal photograph. Neither of these are true. They're really kind of a sense that we have in our head. And one of the things that I was thinking about is I travel a lot for work and I tend to have insomnia when I travel. So I wake up in strange hotel rooms. And the first thing I ask myself is, where am I? You know, And that's a very existential question. It's not a where am I literally, like how do I get to the Walgreens? It's, a, it's an existential question of where am I? And I can resolve it very quickly by just saying, oh yeah, that's right. I came in, checked into the hotel yesterday, blah, blah, blah. Immediately I'm okay. But imagine if you couldn't do that. Imagine if you're just like showing up somewhere and you're just like, have this moment and you're like, where am I? That's terrifying, right? And that's terrifying even if it's not a matter of where am I physically, but where am I in this conversation? Where am I, you know, in time? And I realized that amnesia is a memory disorder, like, in you know, mild cognitive impairment, for instance, early Alzheimer's. You're floating in time and space. And I always used to see this in patients where you talk to a patient and sometimes they would be seem totally normal. They're with it. They're happy. On average, a lot of people with just pure memory disorders tend to be pretty happy people, I find. But then there would be these moments where they were reminded that they had a memory problem. And then you just see this look of fear on their face. And then you'd move topics and then it goes away. But it really kind of struck me that whole link between memory anchoring you in the present. It's like telling you, here's where I am. Here's the time. Here's the place. And without the past as a reference point, you got nothing. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a really poignant, you had, you, you have a description like that in the book where, you know, you talk about somebody in the earlier stages of Alzheimer's or even somewhat maybe mid or late stages where they're constantly in the state of not knowing where they are in time and space and, and how terrifying that is. And I, and I think a lot of us who think about the impact of memory loss, it's not that fear that we think of, but rather the loss, right? The, the, the kind of losing all of this, this past, this access to your past. But the fear, I think, is, is really, in some ways, the worst part of it, because without help, there isn't a way to get around it. And one of my favorite ways of using art to help people who, uh, with their health and well-being is to, is to use the rules of improv to interact with someone who is in this kind of state. And, and, and the rules essentially are that you, instead of no budding them, so instead of they, if they make a mistake and say, I want to go back to my husband who passed away many years ago, instead of saying, no, you can't because, you know, he's no longer here. You say yes and, mm. and you say yes, okay, yes, let's go there. And then you, you know, walk into their world and you redirect and you have a conversation. And so, and then, you know, one of the other rules is that you, you listen and you kind of really hear what they're saying. And so to me, that just little shift in terms of how you're interacting with someone is really a powerful way of mitigating some of that fear. And as I was reading your book and thinking about the hippocampus and the role of these memory structures, it struck me that that's really in some ways what the hippocampus is doing. It's like figuring out what else is connected. It's indexing. It's not just storing the actual information. It's helping you navigate through. So I wonder if you could give us a a modern contemporary description of what we're thinking about now in terms of how we understand the role of the hippocampus in memory and what it doesn't do, which I think a lot of people think it does, which is actually store the long-term information. Yeah. I mean, actually, you just did a beautiful job, unsurprisingly, you did a beautiful job <laughs> of explaining it. I think one of the things that I think makes the hippocampus such an interesting place is that it's a non-specialist. It doesn't seem to have any kind of a, you know, a specialization except for the fact that if you look at the anatomical inputs, the predominant ones, they are some of the most connected areas of the brain. 
So it's getting inputs from a lot of non-specialists too. Mm. So what it's able to do is be able to arbitrarily put those things together, right? So in other words, if you are getting inputs from an area that's like about things that you're seeing, so it's visual inputs, then you can store memories that are relative to all of these things that you've seen. If you're processing information about, you know, sound, you can store memories that are basically indexed, like a little library you could make of sounds. But if you're getting information about everything, things just shouldn't. So in other words, it's like right now, you're probably like, you're looking at me, but maybe occasionally getting distorted by this fake Rickenbacker guitar in the background, right? <laughs> and, you know, semantically, there's nothing. It's a completely arbitrary association, but it's just happening at this point in time. And so in a way you need to have like, I mean, it's, this is like a very strange way of putting it, but it's like to the hippocampus, it's kind of like a beginner's mind, right? It's like, it doesn't really have enough knowledge of, I'm really being anthropomorphic, but it doesn't really have anything that's keeping it from associating those things because it's just saying, hey, they happen at the same place and time. And I think one of the newer discoveries that we've been part of, but not all ourselves, of course, has been to really realize the importance of the fact that the hippocampus shouldn't always be doing that job. So I think for a long time, you know, you and I both done studies where you give people a bunch of words to memorize or pictures to memorize. And people will say, oh, I've remembered three out of those five words or whatever it was. And we would score them on that. And we say, that's what happens. And if they had a perfect memory, you'd store everything, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not how it works. And if I you know, take this hour-long conversation. If, if you remember this, you know, conversation later and you tell people like three things from this conversation, that's a huge success, right? Mm -hmm. So you're clearly not getting everything. And in fact, that would be really counterproductive. I and mean, can you imagine like just the sheer amount of redundancy you would have if you stored every moment in time? And so part of what we've been doing and some of the computational work we've been doing has gotten me going back to the books and really seeing everything that you see, it's telling you that the hippocampus is saving it for just those moments when something is surprising, when something is new, novel, you know, a completely new place or a new object. Something is arousing emotions, like it's, you know, scary, or it's something that's like, you know, giving you a feeling of love and attachment, or you know, something that's like, oh, this is great. I'm in sensation of lust or desire whatever it is, something that's important. So even we can find like when we're scan we started scanning people, not while they're memorizing words, but while they watch a movie. And one of the things that we found was, is it's really hard to show the hippocampus doing anything with memory while people watch a movie, which was, you know, after doing years of work, which you and I both did, mm -hmm. documenting lots of memory effects in the hippocampus while people are doing boring memory tasks that involve a lot of arbitrary nonsense. But what we found was there are these particular moments, which we call event boundaries. And so these are moments where things are kind of going either there's a surprise or there's something that, you know, it's kind of like an end of a scene or something like that, right? Like in other words, I just kept talking, but all of a sudden I started, I put up my phone and I started looking at my phone. You would create an event boundary in your head. You'd say, okay, he's no longer really paying attention to me. He's really paying attention to his phone, right? And at those moments, there's a spike in hippocampal activity. And the weird thing is, when that happens, that spike of memory of activity is predictive of not what happened at that moment, but of the entire memory of what happened in the event before that preceded it. And we went through a data set of like, you know, over 300 people who were scanned while they watched movies. And you can see that these spikes in activity in the hippocampus go down as people get older, they have less of these spikes. But independent of age, what we found was that people who had more of those spikes performed better on a completely independent test of memory outside of the scanner. You would be the Wexler memory scale, logical memory. So it's a memory test of memory for stories. And so it's actually like a really useful biomarker for memory, right? I mean, the correlations are just gigantic. And so it really struck me how if you look at the right moments, you can see this huge role for the hippocampus in memory. And then I started look, 
If you look at the navigation literature, when people see a landmark or their decision point, you get spikes in activity, you know, and there's lots of place cells around those points and, and uh, moments of surprise. If you look at, I mean, you know, as you know, from recording from epilepsy patients, if you want to know if a hippocampus is functioning, you just surprise them. You get, boom, a big P300 ERP. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this big signal that you get when something surprising is happening. And so it just was this aha moment of just putting everything together that not every moment should be memorable. You really want to just grab a few things. And in a way, that was part of the message in the book about why we remember. Because if we can't remember everything, if we don't remember everything, well, what makes something memorable in the first place? What's the point in remembering anything, you know? So I think lots of times we get stuck sitting around saying, why can't I remember blah, blah, blah? And I thought it's like much more interesting to me to say, why do we remember anything in the first place? Listening to you describe these these kind of spikes and, and these events just reinforces the kind of media training you get or when you learn to be a performer on stage that what's really important is what you know Daniel Kahneman said, like the peak end rule, right? You got to have a peak. Mm-hmm. You got you to gotta say like, that's what it is. And then how you finish, you have to have a strong finish. Yeah. And it, you know, it sounds like these are actually ways to signal to the hippocampus, hey, you know, remember this later on because these are the important bits. Absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, along those lines, I mean, it's it's a great analogy because another thing is I've learned this from communicating a lot is counterintuitives. If you tell people, you know, memory gets worse as they get older, Mm -hmm. they go, oh, who cares? I knew that, right? But on the other hand, if you can frame it in a way that's kind of like, did you know, though, that people have a better bias to remember positive events as they get older. So in a way, there's, there's something good about that. People, oh, wow, that's interesting, you know? And so, you know, framing things in terms of a gap between what they know and what the actual information is out there, I think really that actually, I mean, we found in our curiosity research lights up a lot of areas in the brain that are associated with dopamine and reward, actually. And so again, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. If you want to communicate, communicate in a way that's surprising or give people a chance to guess before you give them the answer. And, and all those things, I think, are part of memorable communication. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. You know, I want to talk about the role of dopamine and, and reward and motivation, too. But first, I want to listen to you think about these individuals that, you know, probably the biggest study of them came from Jim McGaugh and Larry Cahill at UC Irvine that are they're mm, called yeah. um, highly superior autobiographical memory oh, yeah. individuals. And, and sort of the, the story is, is that they can remember every moment of, of their lives. But if you dig a little bit into what they're actually remembering the way that Jim and Larry did... What you see is not that they remember more 24 hours after an event. It's just that they don't forget. So their forgetting curves are shallower than they would be. And when you speak to some of these individuals, they 
also seem to have a, a pretty strong correlation with obsessive compulsive behaviors. So one of the patients I remember, Jim McGaw showed that like her shoe collection was like super organized and it's like a whole room full of shoes that were like color coded, et cetera. And they all, you know, a lot of them sort of have, you know, some of these other related OCD like behaviors. And when you th- ask them how they like, they love the fact that they have this highly spear autobiographical memory and they kind of obsessively recall things. So they will like go through and they'll talk about how they have this calendar in their head and they can like flip through certain days and all this kind of thing. So what do you think about those particular individuals? And what does that tell us about why we remember if you can have this situation in which a person essentially obsessively builds an index of their memories and then continuously remembers over time. Uh, yeah. What do you think about it? I, yeah, I find this fascinating. I mean, there's so many things I think about this. One of the things is that I love about that discovery was just how little we know about how people vary in their ability to remember. Mm-hmm. And people ask me this all the time and it's almost embarrassing. I say, well, you know, I don't know if you're a visual learner or not. I don't <laughs> know if somebody else has a better memory than someone else, you know? These highly superior autobiographical memory, this literature, one of the things that struck me, I didn't know about the forgetting curves. I have to go back to that. But what I did know is is that when you give them just lists of arbitrary words to remember, they're not on average better than anyone else. Right. And so what that tells you right there is that nobody has a perfect memory for everything, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be meaningful to you in some way. And you've got a lot more memory for those things that are meaningful to you. And the other part of it is, is that uh, Beth Loftus showed that they were as likely as people without this to actually generate memories for things that didn't happen and or, or distort their memories, you know. And this relates to the idea that we don't really replay the past, but we imagine how the past could have been. But I think relevant to your point, if you look at like people who are experts in anything, like you're a obsessive baseball fan you can have an extraordinarily detailed memory for past baseball games, you know? And if you look at like elite athletes, like I I use the example in the book, which I just love, I I love telling people about this, is like YouTube videos of LeBron James, and he will go back and dissect his performances in past games to the point where he can talk and you can show video of it, and it looks like he's got a photographic memory of those things, right? Right. But that's what makes him a great basketball player is he has this intense knowledge and this intense motivation. Mm -hmm. And so I think to some extent, this is characteristic of people with highly autobiographical autobiographical memories. They have a, a great degree of organization in their lives, which is a prerequisite for good memory. And they have an obsessive interest in the things that they're doing, whatever it happens to be. And so I think that that really speaks to it. But one of the things that I also found interesting in reading about some of these people is reading their own reports about how they don't feel happier. That's right. Necessarily than somebody who isn't. And they're certainly not way more successful than someone like me, who Brian Levine says, I have like a severely deficient autobiographical memory. So, <laughs> so, you know, but they don't seem to be hugely, you know, I mean, they're successful, but not anything that you would expect based on watching a movie like Limitless or something, right? It's not like they've figured out everything. But one of the things that they report is they tend to ruminate a lot. Yeah. You know, and you even see this in LeBron that he ruminates on all the basketball games that he's lost. And he has great memory for his, the games where they played badly. And so I think that that to me is a very striking thing about that power of memory to bring back the regrets and bring back the things that you'd like to play differently. And it's positive, right? I mean, there's a lot of work being done by people like uh, Dan Schachter and Philippe de Brigard and Roland Benoit on this topic of how you can use memory to generate these counterfactuals and replay how things could have been. And that's really useful for learning from the past. But it's also terrible if you just spin your wheels and it just keeps you stuck in the past, right? And so you look at these people with severely deficient autobiographical memories. So these are people who, you know, it's like they'll tell you about what they did yesterday and it's like they're reading from the phone book or something. It's not at all. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no sense that they relive their past, but they seem really happy. Like they're just in the moment, you know, and they're here, right? And 
And so I think that tells you something, which is like memory is a great asset as a resource, but you don't want it in the driver's seat. You know, you want to be able to use it when you need it. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I should clarify that the forgetting curves are only for autobiographical information. That is, they don't know, they don't forget autobiographical details, but you're right. They don't remember details that are not personally relevant in the same way. And one of the things also that struck me was that there was this one description of this one person who talked about how when she gets into an argument with someone, she can forgive, but she can't forget. Mm, yeah. And that there must always be this like sense of like, oh, that person wronged me. And so that kind of gets me to this whole, you know, the relationship that we have with memory, like what's it for? Why are we using it? You know, we think that it's probably so that we can protect ourselves from predators that we've encountered in the past or negative situations that we want to avoid. But you're right, it has this coloring that if you live too much in that past, it it actually can be pretty stressful and, well, just not fun. Yeah, it's funny because it's like one of the great things that I learned. I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of my happiest times as a scientist are times when it's like I realize I was totally wrong about something. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that had been going on for a while in the imaging literature was this obsession about the default network. And so these are these areas in the middle of the brain that show basically they tend to activate when people aren't doing a task. Mm -hmm. So we're scientists, we love to give people tasks. And here's these set of brain areas that are more active when people aren't doing a task. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, this is a completely uninteresting topic. (laughs) And then I saw a bunch of things that made me go, I was totally wrong about this. It's like, these areas are really important for memory. And then I started to go back into all that literature. I said, well, wait, what are people doing when they're not doing a task? Well, they're living in the past or they're anticipating the future. And all of these things require you to basically use memory to create a little internal monologue of what's going on, you know? Yeah. And so I think that I actually can't remember how I got started on this. No. But I think it speaks to whatever it is we were just talking about. Yeah, no, exactly right. Oh, yeah. Living in a world of memory. Yeah, living in a world of memory. And then also, you know, how it's it is like, I think it's interesting that, you know, obviously it's such a scientific term. And, and, you know, I think it was, was it Marcus Reichel who coined the default mode network, like default modes? (laughs) I was like, that's kind of unfortunate, right? Yeah. It's our default mode. It's like the brain in neutral When in fact, it's not. It's the brain in this active state of like just navigating the world without a focus, you know, on a particular task. And and I think it's really fascinating that it seems that this network that gets activated when we're in that state is really all about, as you described, remembering the past or anticipating the future. So if and, you know, I think a lot of people, again, as you mentioned, like they complain about the fact that they're memory is not very good. It's not veridical. It's not accurate. And we see that a lot in times where remembering accuracy is a kind of life or death situation, whether it's in, you know, in the criminal justice system or, or elsewhere. So we, we know we can't rely on it for that kind of accuracy, but it has this tie-in too to imagination that in some ways, I think of that as as, a, as the kind of human superpower is that we can take the, the the fact that it's not accurate gives us also the flexibility to remove certain bits and rearrange them. But now we're getting to the point where I think we are starting to become less and less comfortable in our default mode. We have so many distractions in life. We're almost never in a waiting room without a phone or some other kind of distractor. And so we don't give our brains a lot of time in the default mode. Do you think that that's an issue related to how we then can imagine things in the future? Are you seeing, you know, changes that are concerning to you in terms of, you know, how little time we actually spend in that default state? That's a really interesting question. I hadn't thought about it that way. I usually get the opposite question, which is, is the technology actually keeping us outside of the present, you know? Mm. I guess what I would say is, in general, both are true, right? It's like we, mm-hmm. we're we constantly flickering, I would say, right now. So I don't have a, um, a smartwatch, partly because I don't want any more reminders of things that I don't need to be paying attention to, right? It's like, if anything, I'm trying to now... I mean, it's not really working right now, but it's like I'm trying to set aside, here's my time for email. Here's my time for meetings and so forth. Because one of the things I find is, is that 
you know, email is a real killer for me because it's like, I'm constantly checking it. I can't have a moment of downtime. And so, but I don't, I look at it and I get stressed and then I go back to whatever yeah. it was I was doing. And it's just completely destabilizing for me, you know? And I think this is what, what you're talking about is this point of like bouncing around from one thing to another. Um, you know, Melina Unkefer and Anthony Wagner have done some cool work on multitasking that speaks to this, that it's like multitasking between like, you know, email and texts and conversations and so forth. It takes a toll because you're constantly engaged in this process of basically taxing your prefrontal cortex saying, okay, wait, what's my goal right now? What am I supposed to be doing? And it's maybe only a few seconds here, a few seconds there, but you're always behind schedule, you know? And I think that adds up in terms of subjective stress. It adds up in terms of impoverished memories. And I think you're right. Having this downtime is actually really important because, you know, we know from sleep research, for instance, that the brain is quite active during sleep. And, you know, certainly something we can talk about more, but there's a decent amount of work, you know, uh, Ariel Tabini and Leila Devachi did some cool work on this. And we've done some cool work on this and other people that even if you just ask people to rest and they're just zoning out, that in and of itself can lead to these patterns of brain activity that are very good for memory. And so this idea that somehow you have to be on all the time, otherwise it's a waste of time, it's not true. And certainly with, you know, sleep, one of the interesting things that we've been exploring is the idea that sleep isn't about even just memory in the sense of just storing things, but it's really about reorganizing and transforming and finding out the common threads of experience. So it's like, if I've like, if I didn't know you already, if I just met you three or four times by regurgitating all that information during sleep, I could pull out some kind of a common sense of what to expect the next time I see you. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of reorganization is super valuable. And I think we can get that more during our down states than during our up states. You know, and the other relationship between, you know, aversive, like stressful states and the hippocampus is that sort of long-term chronic stress we know can destroy cells in the hippocampus because of cortisol and, and that hormones effect. And, you know, even the, the acute stressful response can heighten memory for the moment because I think it gives you that little spike, right? Gives you that that marker. Yeah. But long-term, it's not good for your hippocampus for sure. There's this kind of then tension between knowing that stressful things are going to affect your sleep and affect your memory and, and destroy your hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And then figuring out ways to to manage that stress, I think that's kind of in, in in some ways what you're talking about, like the patients who are stuck in the present don't seem as stressed. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is this relationship between our tendency to to remember and then this kind of negative effect of, well, if we keep thinking only about the negative things, that's going to be stressful and that's going to lead us to not remember. It's, you know, there's so much about stress I'd love to talk about. I, I'll speak directly to this question, though, because it is, I think it's, it's a great question. So there's a really interesting line of work in the animal literature showing that animals with damage to part of the hippocampus, uh, the ventral hippocampus, for those who care, but uh, who have damaged part of the hippocampus actually look like they have less anxiety than you know, healthy animals. Hmm. And, you know, who knows what anxiety means in a rat. But what happens is you throw them in like a room with bright lights and they typically don't like that. But, you know, rats with hippocampal damage are just fine. They're just walking around like everything's hunky-dory, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that somehow having this brain damage would give you this kind of like freedom from anxiety, it fits with what we're talking about with the amnesia patients is that, or people who don't, engage much in this world of memory. And I think part of this is that it's like, if you have memory, you can generate expectations that are very rich. Mm. And those expectations can really go bad places, right? I mean, stress, like if you think about the difference between stress and fear is, fear is like someone's got a gun pointed at me. It's, in a way, that's easy. You just run and it's, it's over, right? Mm -hmm. But stress is somebody could be pointing a gun at me. I have no idea. Where are they? It's unpredictable and uncontrollable. And that predictability and controllability are the key things that differentiate stress from, say, something that's equally likely to activate cortisol, like going skydiving or something, you know, where it's like, 
I can predict when I jump out of that plane and I can control it. So I think, though, this idea of having memory and having it give you some sense of like something's not right here, that is, I think, key to some of what we're talking about. Like, oh, I've been in this situation before and something bad happened. And so something could happen now. And I think it's that's valuable in a way, right? You want to have those kinds, that kind of information available. But I always like to say it's like memory should give you more options, not less. It should be allow you to kind of go, okay, this is what could happen, but this could also happen and so forth. But with fear and stress, there's a tendency to narrow your view and say, this is the only thing that could happen or it's the only thing you think about. Yeah. Well, I, I, we, there's so many things. I mean, in my list is like, we, we got to like a third of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I have a way We're of going stop, on long. But, <laughs> no, but also, you know, yeah, obviously I'm fascinated by the topic and I, I really enjoyed your book. But you end the book with a chapter about sort of the, what I'm going to call the social cognitive neuroscience of remembering and why we remember. And so what are some of the things that we have learned recently about the social side of memory? Often we just hear about the negatives that, you know, two people don't remember the event in the same way. Often one is harmed by the other and the other doesn't remember it as being something that, that was harmful. And, and, and so there's an argument or et cetera. But, but sort of what are the benefits of the social remembering component? You know, this was one of the most fun things about writing the book was I learned about something completely new. Mm -hmm. You do this for over 20 years and you think you figured it all out. And then it's like, oh my God, I have no idea about this stuff. And so I wrote some friends and said, hey, can you tell me about it? And so there was this whole literature that I didn't even know about on autobiographical memory and mother-child interactions, for instance. And one of the fascinating things about this literature is that basically children who engage positively with their mothers. I don't know why they only studied mothers, fathers, you know, it could equally be even peers, but especially children who interacted with their mothers positively about memory had all of these benefits in terms of, you know, scholastic performance, emotional stability, and so forth that really carried on into later years. So there was something powerful about a child being able to share their memories, which these are very kind of they're more carry information about what happened, but a little bit less about all the other meaning that people put into it. And having a parent put that into perspective in a way that they can actually form their sense of who they are. And so one of the things that I really came to believe is, is that once we share a memory, it's no longer mine, it's ours. You know, that it's like, I'm actually shaping a story that I'm telling you. And that narrative is being tuned for a particular communication goal. And then it really struck me. It's like, boy, most of communication, something like, I don't know, 80% or whatever, is sharing memories. I mean, arguably, that's why humans have language is so that you, don't, you can learn from my mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're sharing these memories. And once I communicate that to you, you can communicate it back to me. And this reminded me of my time working in the clinic, because I'm not trained in cognition or neuroscience, I trained in clinical psychology. And so I would do group therapy. And I was just stunned at how powerful it was to be able to say, here's this memory that I have that I'm guilty about or I'm ashamed of. And I share it with the group and somebody else says, hey, the same thing happened to me here. Let me tell my story. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting here as an observer, as the group therapist, and I'm saying, I'm just scratching my chin and listening. And I'm saying to myself, you know, you said this, you said this, you said this. From my perspective, here's what I'm hearing. And then it's like that perspective rotates and people can translate their own experience in a way that's totally different than where they came in with. And so I think that is a huge part of what the communicative function of memory is, is for us to benefit from each other's perspectives and provide new information that we didn't have before. And yeah, that could be weaponized, but it's also, I think, the key to human success. You know, you, you've kind of laid out why it's so uncomfortable when you're the odd person in a group of people who have known each other for 20 years and are sharing all kinds of memories and you're not a part of that. It feels very much like an ostracism. But it also 
you know, reminds me of, of some of the best conversations I've had with my kids, which have been about what they remember. And it's kind of fascinating to see that, you know, they remember things that I never would have expected them to, but also they forget things that I fully expect them to remember, you know, like, they don't remember going to Disneyland. But they remember when we had French fries at like after school one day. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a lens into what is important to them. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, sorry, I don't want to interrupt your thought. But this is just reminding me of one of the, again, something that I you know, I was listening to a podcast interview with Alison Gopnik mm-hmm. and she started talking about this. And then I went on a, on a total rabbit hole about this. But it's like, what are these things that if you study episodic memory, which we did, the first thing that you learn is kids are not as good at episodic memory tests as adults. And older adults are not as good at episodic memory events as younger adults are. And so basically, as a scientist, I had this mental picture that basically you have like a window of like 18 to 30 <laughs> when you actually have good memory and everything else is terrible, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just not true. I mean, children have a great memory, right? Yeah. And yeah, as older adults, memory does slip on average. I've been talking about this a lot actually lately with all the stuff that's going on with the presidency, the election. But yeah, memory does get worse as you get older. But it made me start, you know, and I always think, God, why is this? And a lot of it is the prefrontal cortex. So yeah. it's this area for, you know, you know a lot about it, but it's, and it's an area that I feel like is the most interesting area when you're talking about human thinking and memory. It's, uh, which allows you to focus what you learn on your goals and focus on the long-term and plan and, you know, reason with information and memory. So it makes memory intelligent, Right. And the prefrontal cortex is one of the last areas of the brain to fully mature in terms of its connectivity with other parts of the brain. So, you know, for instance, the teenage brain is famously not, you know, you don't have a fully connected prefrontal cortex that's all fine-tuned. And at the same time, you know, as older adults, you start to lose your frontal function. You become more distractible. You become, it's harder to find the words you're looking for. You're more forgetful but not necessarily in the sense of like, I don't have the memory, but I just can't find it, right? So why the heck would this happen? And then I I started to hear about this, read more and more. And it's like, well, you know, if you think about human ecology as opposed to human neuroscience, and you just think about how do humans work, right? I mean, how do they get together in societies? It's like, you know, traditional society probably for most of human existence has been children kind of, you know, raised in this village or whatever, and they're playing and they're exploring the world in this unconstrained way. And that's a huge source of information that they can get that as adults, we can't get because, you know, as a young adult, your goal is to provide for your children and you got to hunt and you got to forage and you're doing all this work, right? And so now you're older, you're pretty much got a whole lot of important episodic memories your job is not, you know, you're probably not going to be having children. Your job now is to really kind of pass on your knowledge to your kin. Mm-hmm. And so your role in the society is to share your knowledge. And in a lot of traditional societies, the older people who are like the grandparents are taking care of the children and they're passing on the knowledge and they're passing on the traditions. Their job is basically passing on semantic memory, which is the knowledge and wisdom that they've accumulated over the years, and that remains solid into old age. And then I started looking into this about orcas, which Hmm. just blew my mind, (laughs) which is like, because then I started thinking about it. It's like, if you look at a lot of species, they don't have menopause. They don't live long after the reproductive years. Humans do, and another species that does are orcas. And if you look at orcas, the orca grandmothers are the leaders of the pod, not the young parents, not the you know, not the ones that are the most necessarily like, you know, young and uh, I don't know, whatever young orcas do, (laughs) but they're the grandmothers. And they're the ones who are teaching, hey, go after this kind of fish. This is the way that you should learn and play in language. And, you know, every orca pod has their own cultures that are just really unique and distinctive. And it just put this whole ecological perspective on memory to me that the purpose of memory is not the same in every part of life. I mean, you're a child and you're trying to figure out how the world works. You're trying to figure out how things come together. 
you're an adult and you think you got it all figured out and your job is to like basically make things happen go 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 and you're older and you've you've done your job and now you have a different role which is much more inclusive and expansive you know yeah and i i come from uh you know my family is hindu and it's like there's an idea there about stages of life that you go through like householder stage and then like you it's a weird thing it's a whole other topic but I kind of like this idea of life having stages and, you know, the functioning of the brain having a different role at different stages. Yeah. I mean, I. Sorry, it's just going on. No, I mean, <laughs> deep I think that's a it's a it's a fascinating worldview look. And I think that really kind of begins to answer the question, although in your book, you admittedly state that you don't know why we remember ultimately. <laughs> There are these signposts that you put along the way. And then I think that's a great way of, of putting it together. So I want to remind our listeners that Taran's book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Taran, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It was great to see you. Hopefully I'll <laughs> see you again soon. Yeah, me too. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Yushi Lin, Jay Henry, Joel, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Podigy. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. At Vanguard, you're more than just an investor. You're an owner. That means your priorities are Vanguard's too. So whether you're planning for retirement or trying to save up for your next big adventure, Vanguard will work alongside you to set personalized investment goals. That's the value of ownership. All investing is subject to risk. Vanguard is owned by its funds, which are owned by Vanguard's fund shareholder clients. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor.